0: On Thursday, the 7th of July, 2011, Rupert Murdoch's flagship newspaper, The News of the World, suddenly announced it would close its doors after its final edition on the coming Sunday. But this newspaper, with an 168 year history, was financially sound and part of the world's largest media company. It also boasted a staggering weekly circulation of nearly 3 million copies. So what led to this dramatic closure, and what could Prince Harry's knees possibly have to do with it? Hello Groove Armada, this is The Sound of History, and my name is Will Redley. Today we're looking at the startling downfall of one of the most popular newspapers in history, the knees of the world. So where to start? As I've already mentioned to you, the readership of this paper was big, and the reason behind the success of the paper probably won't shock you. The stories were full of drama, sex, celebrity and gossip, and the people loved it. The paper would buy up all of the stories of the week about celebrity, royals, politicians, and then dump them together on a Sunday. This approach was the bread and butter of the news of the world since Murdoch's acquisition of the paper in 1969, so much so that it earned the nickname Screws of the World for its exposure to the private lives of the country's most famous faces. So although the content of the paper isn't particularly surprising, the ways that some journalists got wind of their stories and even meddled in them was nothing short of a shocking discovery. But we'll get on to that momentarily. First, we should turn the clock further back to some very confusing events about Prince Harry's knees that took place in November 2005. As a regular feature in the news of the world, Prince Harry was probably unsurprised by his inclusion in the newspaper. But on November 6th, 2005, he and his royal staff were struck when they saw a small story written about a knee injury he'd sustained just days before. The piece had been written by the royal editor Clive Goodman, a position that he'd held for more than a decade at the paper. The week later came a follow-up from Goodman, a small story on the inside pages detailing how Prince Harry had borrowed some broadcasting equipment from a friend at the ITV. In all honesty, neither story carried the scandalous punch of a front-page splash. Seemingly, they were just throwaway tidbits. Innocuous, at best. But what drew attention to them was the private nature of both of the stories. Nothing public had been made of either incident, and communication in both instances was totally closed. The communication with Harry's doctor and the ITV friend was conducted exclusively over the phone. And this perplexity marked the beginning of a shadowy narrative, one that Goodman himself hadn't fully grasped, hinting at a deeper scandal lurking beneath the surface of these deceptively simple stories. So I mentioned that journalists would meddle in stories, and here is where the story turns ugly. For this is when we turn back to March 21st, 2002. It was a blustery Thursday afternoon at Heathside School in Weybridge. Classes had just finished for the day, and a 13-year-old girl named Amanda Dowler, or Millie as she was known, was chatting with her friend as they made their way to the train station to head home. They stopped on the way at the walton on thames station cafe to grab something to eat, and Millie called her father at 3.45 to say that she'd be home in around half an hour. They had a little break before the girls packed up and left the station at four. Millie said goodbye to her friend before starting her 15-minute journey home, a route she knew very well, a route she'd taken a hundred times before. Things seemed astray, therefore, when... Millie's parents noticed that at 5pm she still wasn't home. As time passed the Dowler parents became more and more distressed by Millie's absence calling her phone to no reply. At last they alerted the authorities and explained the disappearance of their little girl at 7pm. Rapidly the story became nationally significant. A 100 police officers were sent searching for the girl Appeals were made for information about the disappearance on national TV and from celebrities, but such efforts came to nothing. Over the coming days and weeks, Millie's parents continued to send messages and voicemails to her phone in the hope of some sort of reply. And what gave them a glimmer of hope was that the voicemails were being listened to and deleted. They could ask themselves whether Millie was still alive. But as time passed, this hope became more and more faint. It was six months later from Millie's disappearance when the worst was finally confirmed. The girl's remains were found by mushroom pickers, 25 miles from the Dowler household, and treated as a homicide case. But why did those voicemails confound both authorities and parents? And how did one girl's disappearance and murder topple a global Sunday newspaper nearly a decade later. As the nation mourned Millie Dowler's tragic fate in 2002, it would be nearly a decade before the strange occurrences with Millie and Prince Harry were put together publicly. And it was The Guardian, who on Monday, the 4th of July 2011, revealed the full story. In the case of Millie Dowler, the story went that journalists from the news of the world had been illegally intercepting Millie's voicemails to provide details of the story for the public. And that this wasn't just an isolated incident. The practice, now known as phone hacking, had become a routine method for the newspaper to scoop exclusive stories. They didn't just target celebrities or politicians, but ordinary individuals caught in extraordinary circumstances like the Dowlers. The revelation that the newspaper was listening and deleting Millie's voicemails, giving her family false hope, caused public outrage. The outrage grew as more details came to light. It wasn't just Millie Dowler's phone. The list of hacking victims included royals like Prince Harry. The method was simple, yet invasive journalists or private investigators hired by the paper would hack into voicemails hoping to stumble upon salacious details or leads on stories. This violation of privacy wasn't just unethical, it was illegal. Public anger reached a fever pitch. Advertisers began to pull their messaging from the news of the world, fearing public backlash for their association with the scandal. Politicians, once cosy with the Murdoch Empire, started to distance themselves. And then, in a stunning turn of events, Rupert Murdoch announced the closure of the news of the world. It was a desperate attempt to contain the fallout, but the damage was done to the paper and the Murdoch brand. The paper's closure marked a significant moment in British media history, signalling the end of an era where tabloid journalism At least of this kind, reigned supreme. So, what song could possibly do justice to this piece of history? Well, one sprung to mind Dirty Laundry by Don Henley, released on the I Can't Stand Still album in 1982. And here's an extract. So that was an extract from Don Henley's Dirty Laundry. Uh, And it is a protest song basically calling out bad practice and a hypnotic media behaviour which had got the eyes of the public absolutely glued. Now what we heard there, can we film the operation, is the head dead yet? The boys in the newsroom got a running bet, get the widow on the set. To me it's saying that there was no level to which these newspapers wouldn't stoop for a story. And this was the 1980s when, when this song was released. But the track goes on to show that these were not merely stories to be told, but rather people's lives. Totally relevant for the story which we just heard about the news of the world. Henley Zurich's Kick 'em When They're Up, Kick 'em When They're Down mirror the news of the world story. They reflect the newspaper's ethos of exploiting personal tragedies for profit. And the line You don't need to find out what's going on. I see as Don Henley saying that if you did look further, you'd be shocked at what the papers were actually doing. There's even a line in there, kick them while they're stiff. There's no tragedy which won't be exploited by these papers. And Henley, to me, is saying that media practices had such vacant integrity and were so self-serving that even the most vulnerable people were targets of bad players. And that's not to say that all the players are good now. The song has relevance today. Media sensationalism isn't going anywhere. But that's the discussion for another time. And on that note, it is time to end. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you're listening. Uh, and tell your friends, tell your family, tell your neighbours, Tell your postman, tell your dog, tell your cat about this. Let's get everybody joining the Groove of Armada, becoming sound historians and, yeah, loving history and music. Thank you so much again for listening. Hope you have a great week. Big love. Big love. Big love. Big love.